Welcome to Square One, powered by FinTech TV. We've all heard of big data, but lesser known is big code. This is an emerging challenge and opportunity for companies today. Challenge because the amount and complexity of code is growing, but an opportunity because its value is also growing. Most tools and practices for code management weren't built for an era of big code. The implication is code bases that are especially large, which is the case in most at-scale organizations, are brittle. Any individual change may shatter the whole thing. That's where Sourcegraph comes in. Sourcegraph has raised over $200 million to solve this very challenge. They built software that empowers engineers to navigate the code base and make changes that doesn't have unintended downstream implications. In today's conversation, I chatted with Sourcegraph founder and CEO, Quinn Slack, on how he's thinking through the era of big code and how Sourcegraph is enabling organizations to operate in a more resilient manner. Quinn, welcome and thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Quinn, excited to have you on the podcast today. You know, we're going to dive pretty deep into Sourcegraph, uh, but I want to kick off the conversation with your background and how it led you to founding Sourcegraph. So tell us the story. How did you come up with the idea? Give us a little bit more of a genesis of, you know, the state of the company today. I've always loved coding. So back when I was nine years old, my parents worked a lot and I'd be at home alone with a computer and the internet. And I just started writing code and I started being in chat rooms with people all around on the internet. This has been the late nineties. So when the internet was a little more innocent and I would fix companies, website, build software, started to make some pretty good money as a kid. I love that no one knew that I was nine years old at the time. <laughs> and I just saw that code brings you together with people all around the world. It lets you do these amazing things. It lets you have such independence and everything since then, you know, began when I was this nine-year-old just coding. Yeah. And if you fast forward and obviously we're glossing over a huge part of the story, but today Sourcegraph has turned into a really important dev tools company uh, for, for developers, right? You've raised over $200 million. Uh, you're building a core platform for engineers and, and companies to interface with code. I think most of the people listening to this are pretty familiar with the idea of big data, uh, but you're building something for big code. What does big code mean? Big code means how every company has way more code, way more devs, way more complexity than ever before. And it's no wonder because as consumers, we all demand that every single bank, every single restaurant have an amazing app that has it's personalized, it's fast, it respects our privacy and security, and it feels native on every platform we use. It's on our watch. So as consumers, we demand all this, but on the back end for all these companies, that means they got to build way more software. And I felt this firsthand because, you know, fast forward, um, I, right out of college, I was working inside two really big banks and I got to see that if you're a developer, they're trying to write software, there's so much code, you can't even find all of it. And you have to go and fly people around the country to ask them, hey, do you have this piece of code? It was just crazy, the amount of code. And every company is just drowning in it. You know, 10 years ago, that's when Mark Andreessen said, software is eating the world. And I think that you might say the world is getting some indigestion because there's so much software. I like that. I, the way I think about it is, you know, solving big code is probably easiest understood as eliminating technical debt as a problem, right? So companies have always had this element of path dependency based on the way they've architected themselves, they've architected their product. I think if you have the ability to understand this path dependency at some macro level, and probably even more interestingly, understand the implications of changes you're making, it could be really powerful, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, every company is just 
piled, it's, it's built on piles and piles of code. So the code that someone wrote back in 1993 is still playing a role every time you wire money or make a trade. And probably no one understands that code anymore. And it would take weeks or months for anyone to understand it. But we are, we are just living on this pile of code. You know, think of like piles and piles of trash and landfill. That's what the whole digital world is based on. And it's scary in many ways. I like that figurative element because it gives a nice visual of, you know, we can see landfills or we can see kind of garbage disposal, et cetera. But it's hard to kind of figuratively or mentally imagine, you know, how much kind of landfills of code there actually are. Uh, yep. But that's exactly the case, right? With, with the types of products and stuff we're building. If you think of an example, you know, of the types of companies you work with and kind of the impact you have for them or so, and, you, and we kind of take this landfill example and, and apply it to an actual tangible business case, right? Maybe for a company, you mentioned banks, right? What's another type of example or, or a type of use case here for Sourcegraph? Well, let's take Uber, for example. Uber growing very quickly. They're not what many people consider to be an old company, but they now have code that's more than 10 years old. And there came to uh, be a point where as Uber was growing quickly internationally, they realized that multiple different teams had written the code to show you all those airport doors at the airport when you arrive in an Uber. And they were doing it differently in Europe and Asia and the US and Canada. And that didn't make any sense. And so you know, they consolidated these six different implementations of the same thing basically into one. And to do that, of course, they needed a way to look across and see, well, what code do we have and where is it actually being used? And so that's one of the first moments when Sourcegraph really clicked for them when having code search, the ability to have like a Google for their code across all of it was really valuable. And you've said previously that the journey to build the product, you know, wasn't like a typical software journey. So the company, you know, for everybody listening, the company started in 2013, I believe. Uh, and I think it took you guys five years, uh, you've said previously, before getting to a product of this sophistication. Uh, why, why was that, right? So when I think of software products, right, and especially the way, you know, we talk about it in Silicon Valley or in technology, you know, it's build an MVP very quickly, build a use case, you know, and, and, and you, you can kind of build up, you can build your you know, what I'd say your strong product, you know, relatively early on in the, in the journey of a venture back business. And then you're typically raising a bunch of money, you know, to hire sales teams, to hire marketing teams, et cetera, and scale the organization. Uh, you of course continue to improve the product, um, but that core product can be developed relatively early. Um, I'm curious why, you know, it, it took kind of this period of time to build that product with that level of sophistication. Is it, did you need a critical mass level of code from customers? Did you need a variety of use cases? You know, how do, how do you think about kind of that journey to building this sophisticated of a product taking, you know, taking five years or so? Well, we thought it was going to go the way that you said. We thought it seemed obvious because we were working in these big banks and we felt the pain of big code. We felt, wow, I wish we had code search so we didn't need to fly people from around the country and ask them things. We could just look it up ourselves. And so we felt the pain. My co-founder had been at Google and Google did have this amazing internal code search tool that all their devs loved. And if you're a Google dev and you quit Google, the thing you miss most isn't the like Atlantic salmon or foosball tables, it's this internal code search tool. So it all seemed obvious. And in the first few weeks after we started Sourcegraph, it all felt like it was coming together really quickly because within about two weeks, we were using Sourcegraph to build, to write the code of Sourcegraph. And we found other code that existed that we could reuse and it would save us weeks. But it took a really long time to get it to be so good 
that every dev in a company would use it. And if we're just getting, you know, a developer here, a developer there, you can't build a business on that. And this was before a lot of recent dev infrastructure IPOs that really showed the market. This was back in 2013 when common wisdom was you can't sell to devs. So we just powered through and we did the work to make it scale up to massive code bases. We support every language because there's more than 45 programming languages that are in common use. And we did another thing that was a little bit different. We didn't start with a cloud offering. Well, actually we did. And at the time we were a tiny company. No companies trusted us with their code because it's such a sensitive asset. So we went on premises, which was going against the grain. You know, Mark Benioff in the early 2000s was talking about the cloud. And here we were 15 years later going the other direction. Now, of course, we have a cloud product, but at the time there's a lot of things we had to do to get every dev at a company using it because we needed every dev to use it before we could get a big company as a customer. And so our early customers were uh, companies like Uber and Lyft and Yelp and others. And once we had it though, you know, the beauty of software is if it works for one company, it's probably gonna work for a hundred companies. And we've been growing like crazy since then, bringing code search to a ton more companies. And since 2019, as you said, you know, we've raised $200 million. We've grown immensely. We're about 200 people now, and it's really working, but it took a lot longer than we thought to get it off the ground because it was really hard to build. I want to, I want to double click a little bit on the, on the dev side, you know, what you just mentioned and, and kind of tie it back to the way you guys operate the business. So Sourcegraph is incredibly transparent. Um, the company handbook is available, you know, online for anybody to read. I, I actually encourage, you know, uh, folks that are listening to, to go check it out as, as a management lesson of sorts, right? Uh, I dug into it, right? And there were a lot of interesting pieces, you know, I want to dive into. The first is actually, you know, on the background of how to think about how early we are in coding's ubiquity and its potential universality. And so, you know, one of the things I think, Quinn, that you just said that's interesting is this idea of, you know, selling to devs was not conventional logic, right? And I remember that, right? In, in the 2014-15 period, it was not conventional. You know, the, the convention was that big money was not, you know, selling to developers. Um, but I think that actually ties hand in hand with kind of this thesis of, you know, how early we are in coding's ubiquity. And then ultimately, if you, if you look into the future, um, right, which is by definition what you're doing when you're building technology businesses, you have to think about its potential for universality. You compared this to writing um, and documented a bit of history on how literacy has changed the world. I'd love for you to unpack that analogy you know, for us, because I, I think it's actually very strong and it, it actually, it's very relatable, you know, even for non-technical folks. Well, back 2000 years ago, most people didn't know how to read and write. And some people did, and they got a lot of power from reading and writing, but there wasn't this idea that everyone would be reading and writing. Why would they need to read and write? Why would anyone need to communicate with more than a few people, the people that could hear them when they speak? In hindsight, we know that was wrong and the human race has come so far given that everyone can communicate. But you know, even as recently as a few hundred years ago, literacy wasn't universal. And now that it is, there are things that people have built and ideas that people have spread that you never could have anticipated back then. And so here we are with code where we're in a similar situation. For most people in the world, you know, they would think, oh, why do I need to code? And the idea of everyone coding is just so far out. And I can't point to specifically what someone is going to build in the year 2031 because they can code. But 
I know that it's going to lead to progress. I believe fundamentally that people are creative and good and we want to give them the power to have a big impact. So that's what coding will do. And I think it's inevitable because if you look at kids, if you look at people, you know, who are 10 or 15 or whatever, way more of them are coding than a generation ago. And it's just growing and growing. But then you think about what's going to happen, going back to that landfill analogy, with more and more code piling up with everybody coding. And this is where code is a little bit different from human language. If someone wrote a book 50 years ago, yeah, maybe a few people read it, but that book is not responsible for you know, important transactions that are occurring now. But if someone writes code, that code could be running, could be in use, could be depended upon for decades. And so we need to be aware of the problem of more and more code piling up. And it is growing like crazy. We've seen recently, a lot of people don't have a good intuition for exponential growth. But one thing that that means is the complexity of code is going up like crazy because the more code, the more developers, the more communication that needs to occur, that's what leads to complexity. So um, we started Sourcegraph in 2013. More code has been written after we started Sourcegraph in the world than before. And that kind of growth is not just leading to a lot more code, but a lot more complexity in that. Yeah, give, give us a sense of that. So there's always, you know, in technology, there's kind of the, the, the Moore's law adage, right? Of, of, you know, computer processing speed, you know, getting faster and faster and faster. Um, but I, I like that stat actually that you pointed out, which is true, which is, you know, the amount of code that's been written. If you look at kind of the graph of the amount of code that exists in the world, it's astonishing, you know, how over, you know, call it an 18, 24 month, you know, period, the previous 24 month period, I don't know the exact numbers, but how much code has been written when you compare it, you know, to the history of code or so. How do you think about that over the next kind of 10 years? Does it follow that similar kind of just exponential, you know, trajectory and curve? And then you, you guys, at the end of the day, you're building the infrastructure for this, right? You're creating tools, networks, you know, et cetera, to manage code bases, right? At individual companies, yes, but then more broadly, you know, between companies and, you know, for industries, et cetera. So how do you think about, you know, building the company when you also have an underlying, you know, base that you need to manage that's growing in an exponential way? It's not growing in a linear way. Yeah, well, if, if any company feels today they have a lot of code, they have a lot of complexity, if they feel it's hard to onboard, they feel it's hard to make big changes, it's hard to change things in response to regulation, it's only going to get worse. It, Consumers are not going to suddenly stop demanding better and better features. Your competitors are not going to stand still in their innovation. Regulation's not going to stop. So all these things are getting worse and it, everything becomes harder as you have a few years more code piled up. So we see that and we're trying to help companies get ahead of that. We make universal code search and it's something that gives every single dev at your company, every single engineering leader at your company, a lot more visibility so they can search and understand and automate that growing amount of code so that they can reuse code instead of rewriting code. And our customers right now are the companies that feel the problem today and know that it's getting worse and worse. And we're trying to get the word out about this problem that every company is going to be feeling it worse and worse. So we're trying to prepare for the future and looking ahead in a world where everyone is coding, this problem is going to be a million times worse unless we do something to help solve it. And going back to that reading analogy, with the explosion of information, with everyone reading and writing and communicating on the internet, the thing that's made that 
possible is Google. Google makes it so you can stay on top of all the information, whether it's information on the web, you go to Google search, or in your email, which is probably exploding compared to 10 or 20 years ago, Gmail, Gmail search. And search is just this rare, very simple and obvious idea that you need when there's way more underlying data or information. And, you know, in a really simple way, we're just bringing that to code. Yeah, I think, I think it's interesting when you kind of extrapolate it out also, because, you know, the, the purpose of the company is to make it so that everyone can code. The mission of the company is to create, you know, tools, networks, incentives for coding at a larger scale. To match that mission and purpose, you've documented, you know, a three, a five, and a 10-year vision. Um, and it's at its core, I, I find the vision, each of those kind of pillars interesting, because at its core, each vision is about democratization, right? Democratization of code search democratization of coding, uh, or sorry, of code, and then the democratization of coding. Uh, I want to go through each of those in depth, but first, can you lay out for us why these are the three pillars, you know, for the three, the five, and the 10-year? Well, it started with the long-term. We need to make it so that people can make money coding without going through gatekeepers, no matter where they live in the world. And then we just, you know, worked forward. So democratizing code search Code search is this solution that makes it so you can deal with a lot more code and still get by as a company. We looked around and when we started SourceGraph, Google had this, Facebook had this, Microsoft had this internal code search, but no other companies did. And we wanted to first bring it to every other company out there. But companies are not the only unit that matters, of course, and then we want to bring it to the individual. So went from there. Yep. So let's start with the three-year, right? What is democratizing code? What does that actually mean? Democratizing code means making it so that all the world's code is connected. And so if you have a great idea for some library, then you can build it, you can release it, and way more people can find out about it. Yep. Yep. And then democratizing code search, right? What does that, what does that mean? And how does, how does the three-year... How does the three-year kind of unlock that? Democratizing code search means bringing code search to every single company out there. So it's not just this secret weapon that Google and Facebook and Microsoft have to build software at scale better than every other business. Yep. And finally, the tenure, democratizing coding. How do you think about that? You know, this might be a little more than tenure, just to you know let, all, let everyone in on a secret. This is making it so that anyone anywhere in the world can make money on code with bringing coding to the masses. We don't think our role is having coding schools all around the world. I think each individual is gonna learn differently. What our role is, is making it so that if you can code or think you wanna code, you know that you're gonna be able to make a great living. You're gonna be able to put food on the table for your family, no matter where you live in the world. Even if you don't work at Google, even if you didn't study computer science, you don't need to go through the traditional gatekeepers. You can think of this kind of like with electronics, any, any device you use is built up of components from so many different companies all around the world. No one builds a component completely, no one builds a device completely from scratch. But with software, you still think of companies as trying to build as much of it from scratch as possible. We wanna make it so that instead you can componentize it. And so anyone anywhere in the world with a great idea for code can not only distribute it, but can make money on that. So then that JP Morgan software developer that's looking for a way to, for example, do LDAP authentication in Java, they can find a really good library that someone in Estonia or India or Indonesia or Japan wrote, 
and JP Morgan can directly pay that developer. And it's got to be really easy. It's got to be really smooth, extremely low transaction costs. But that's what we can create once we have global code search. And it's something that will dramatically expand the number of people that can code. Kind of like me back when I was nine. Yes, I loved coding and I love it fundamentally. But what I loved is I could make money on it. And I got independence from that. And I chose then to devote my life to it. And a lot more people doing that, that's, that means way more progress for the world. It means progress that is spread all across the world and not just decided by what tech founders in Silicon Valley want. Yeah, I think that's, that's one of the really exciting things, which is just this idea of like infrastructure like this or products like this allow for more progress by definition, right? Because it lowers the complexity, the difficulty, the inertia, et cetera, for more people to get involved. And as more people get involved, you know, they have the ability basically to unlock, you know, more for not only themselves, but the communities that they live in, right? Um, when you think about the purpose and the mission of the company, and you kind of think on a 30-year horizon, right, which is the timeline you've tagged the mission to, um, I think about it in two buckets, and I, I want to get your thoughts on this. So one bucket is kind of what we just talked about, which is, you know, expanding progress, borderline impossible to kind of think through, you know, what are the downstream implications, right, of, of unlocking progress. Um, but there's this other bucket that I, I do want you to pine on, which is, you know, what are the possibilities or what are the types of possibilities that you get most excited about? And what I mean by that is, if you have a critical mass of code base uh, that your tools sit on top of, it's not just about search, right? Like there's all sorts of interesting possibilities that form, you know, a source graph kind of serves as this like neural layer for the world's code base, right? So search might be, you know, kind of day one, et cetera. But what are the types of you know, product possibilities or things that you get excited about when you do think on that long-term horizon of where Sourcegraph's role you know, can be from a product perspective on top of this you know, already large but very quickly growing, as we've discussed, code base? Well, we want to make it so that when you're coding, you don't feel like you're talking to the machine. You feel like you're dealing with that business problem that you're trying to solve. So that if you're trying to, for example, you know, in Uber's case, build an app that shows you all the airport doors when the user gets to the airport. We don't want you to feel like you're connecting this network and API call and doing this you know, underlying low-level thing. We want you to think in terms of what data do I need to access? How do I show that to the user? And that comes from code reuse. That comes from making it so the code is really easy to understand, so that you have all the context about the code. So a lot of it is just making it so that the, the act of coding is a lot smoother and you feel like you're duplicating effort less and you feel like you're connecting with other people. So showing the other people that are involved on, on the code, not just dealing with you know, lines of code, but um, here's who knows about that or here's who's going to be affected by that change. So from you know, a, a developer's point of view, that, that means massively simplifying it, but not in a way that hides complexity, that removes complexity. Yep. Quinn, as we, as we round out the conversation, um, I'm going to ask you the Peter Thiel question as applied to code search, right? Which is what's one thing you believe about code search or, or the space you can broaden it out uh, that others wouldn't agree with you on? Well, I think every developer will be using code search and most devs have no idea what code search is yet and don't know why it's awesome. And I've seen it happen so many times that a dev uses it and they're hooked. They can't live without it. And we've never lost a customer. So we see that, but still we want to spread the word about code search. The problem's only getting worse and worse that it's solving. 
Yeah, I think the interesting thing and, and why I was so glad, you know, that you took the time to come on the show is um, it's it's one of these problems that it's a, you know, it's a large market opportunity, et cetera. But it's one of these problems a lot of folks that are living in the real world or non-technical folks, you don't think of, right? Like you don't actually think of, you know, hey, the the bank rails upon which, you know, I rely upon to make my mortgage payment, you know, is probably a code base that was like developed 30, 40, 50 years ago, Right. Um, and what if that breaks, right? Or what? What if um, you know? What if I? What if I do want to do different kinds of things? What yeah. are the implications for me downstream as a customer? And when you, I think when you adopt this framework, and you think about pretty much every application in your life, as every company becomes more and more technology company, as we live more of our lives on these things, uh, this is a problem that's that's universally pervasive. So I appreciate the time. I appreciate you coming on and, and sharing the perspective. And um, you know, I encourage folks to really go read you know, the Sourcegraph handbook online, I found it very instructive as well as, you know, think about this problem a, a little bit more critically. Thank you.